This is episode 43 of the Immunology Podcast, Respiratory Viral Infections with Dr. Gia Sun. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Jia Sun from the University of Virginia on the podcast to talk about his research studying respiratory immunology under homeostasis and disease conditions. Almost like we've had a viral pandemic lately or something. Yeah, yeah, a lot of work. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first... Exciting news. Immunology 2023, which is the annual meeting for the American Association of Immunologists, is taking place from May 11th to May 15th, 2023, in Washington, D.C., and early bird registration opens today. Abstract submission is also open until December 19th, and those who submit can also apply for an AAI travel award. Don't miss your opportunity to be a part of the world's leading annual all-immunology meeting. Visit www.immunology2023.org for more information. Well, I know where I'm going. Mm, very exciting. Have you been to AAI? Uh, meetings before? Actually, I don't think I have. I usually stayed on the gut side of immunology, but I'm looking mm. forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. It's, it's, it's too far away on the other side of the pond, I guess. Is but, it, is it, is it, does it count as the pond if you're all the way that far on the Atlantic, or you can only say if pond if it's in like, you know, Britain or something? Uh, good mm. question. Like, mm. is it the pond if you're in California and you're in Amsterdam? <laughs> There's a pond, there's a, there's a park, there's a, there's a smaller park in between. Yeah, I guess I guess it's, it's a pond. It would be this is, this a bit is of an question. understatement. The pond actually is a huge, badass ocean. You know, we have five oceans now, right? Did you see that? Didn't we always have five oceans? We had, we, no, they added one. Which one? Yeah, so there was, you know, the Indian, the the, the Arctic, the... Atlantic, the Pacific. Um, Pacific. But there's a fifth ocean, right? Sorry, there's a fifth one. So oh, apparently the, the there's a part, the Antarctic in a section near Australia, if I get this right, uh -huh. is its own ocean now because it has its own, like, apparently there's a definition of what makes an ocean an ocean. All right. It's all connected, right? Like, it's not like the water from one ocean doesn't touch the water of the other ocean. So, so there's something about what defines an ocean that I do not yeah. know, but like it has to do with like currents and salinity changes and temperature and stuff. It's like an isolated ecosystem. And apparently there's an Antarctic Ocean. I mean, I'm not surprised, but we're in there like seven oceans. Are those pirates well, those are the go around the seven seas. seas? Yeah, the seven seas, right? But, you know, I think a couple, I think the, a couple of oceans got split up into some multiple seas. I really hope that no geographers or geologists are <laughs> listening to the podcast because they would probably be facing. If you know what makes an ocean an ocean as a definition, let us know because we Please. only know what we read on the interwebs. <laughs> let's stop making fools of ourselves. Why don't let's talk about things we do know? Like oh, all right. Like papers. All right. Well, do you, do you have one that's, do you have a CAR T paper you want to talk about to start with? Uh, no, actually no CAR T papers this time, but I do have a nice paper that is kind of a follow up of the paper I talked last time. So, all right. So you, you can count as knowing that because I had to jump far afield this time for me for at least one of my papers. All right. Then show me. All right. You want me to show you? All right. We're all, I will talk about more things I only kind of know about, which is uh, the paper. <laughs> Circulating CMET expressing memory T cells 
Ooh. Defying cardiac autoimmunity. First author is Sylvia Fonti. Last author is Federicia M. Marelli Berg. Came out in circulation on the 23rd of November. What a way to butcher those names. You know, my, my hideous American accent. Um, that being said, I know what CMET is. I know what memory T cells are. I've treated cardiac autoimmunity. And yet combined together, this one was an interesting paper to try to wade through um, just because it got very in-depth on things that I don't think about very often. So long and short, one of the cardiac, we, we all think when we think about heart, we think about heart attacks, but there's other stuff that happens to hearts too. One of these is uh, myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart. And one of those is autoimmune myocarditis. And there's this of autoimmune, there's a subset of, there's this phenomenon by where often after auto, where your heart can have dilated cardiomyopathy. So it kind of blows out and doesn't do so well afterwards because and then it doesn't pump as well. And so there's idiopathic card, uh, dilated cardiomyopathy, IDCM. But they find that in those cases, but and they also, so they have that disease. And there's also- um, Idiopathic meaning we don't know where it comes from. Right. Right. That, 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 that's the whole joke of it makes you an idiot as a condition, right? So you have this idiopathic di uh, dilated cardiomyopathy. Then you have autoimmune known uh, myocarditis. Well, most cardiomyopathies, dilated cardiomyopathies, happen after, when you see it, they happen, many of them occur after autoimmune myocarditis. So the autoimmune inflammation leads to a dilated cardiomyopathy. But they've also found in recent years that if you just go and look at an idiopathic one, like after the fact or with some type of imaging, or if you take their blood cells, they have a lot of the same immune markers is autoimmune. And so there's this question of how much of idiopathic is just undiagnosed subclinical autoimmune myocarditis that then leads to the symptom of dilated cardiomyopathy, which they label idiopathic because the autoimmune part wasn't as obvious. So that's the obvious would be like cells infiltrating. Well, like if you know, well, well, they're not going to take your heart and do that, right? Because it's your yeah. heart, you're alive. But like if you mm -hmm. feel sick with the autoimmune myocarditis, then you have mm -hmm. a clinical presentation. If you feel sick with the dilated cardiomyopathy, that's your clinical presentation. So they're thinking a lot of this idiopathic, I don't know what caused it, was subclinical autoimmune myocarditis. So that's kind of the background of this paper. And what they find is that when they look at both of these populations, but then take normal control or compare it with a infarction, which has an immune cell migration, but in, but doesn't have like necessarily the same features, then a couple of things pop out. The first is that there's this positive, this T cell marker CMET, and those tend to be much higher in these autoimmune states. And they produce a lot, and they tend to produce multiple cytokines, IL-4, IL-17, IL-22. And then they took the cells out and looked at autoimmune-mediated proliferations. So they took human antigens from people with these diseases and found that they actually, the immune cells from both of them will rapidly expand in the presence of cardiomyosin, which is that's an autoimmune, autoimmune process. And so that's the big thing here is that they are able to identify these different cell populations are distinct and there's some overlaps in mechanisms of inflammation. So there's some CMET, but it's not quite the same CMET positive cells in heart attacks. It doesn't necessarily this triple positive high cytokine doesn't respond to autoimmune 
antigens and expand. And so they show that this autoimmune component is pretty specific. And then they go into an experiment, and this is all in humans. This is in human samples, peripheral blood macrophages taken from people with these diseases. And then they and they looked at Sjogren's as a negative control, which is an autoimmune disease, but it's not cardiac typically. And then they went and um, then did a mouse model that they published on before of autoimmune myocarditis. And then they used a CMET inhibitor and they show the same pattern. And also that the, but the cytokine profiles are a little different from these cells, partially because they produce interferon gamma, but in humans, those cells didn't. And then they show also though that a CMET inhibitor reverses the effects. So if you do this induction model and you do a CMET inhibitor on top, it doesn't work. You, you can't induce, the, you get much less autoimmune myocarditis in this experimental model. And so, you know, it did a couple cool things. It shows CMET is a player here. It shows a CMET inhibitor is enough to stop at least an experimental system, this disease state. And it shows that these cells seem to be pretty responsible even for things that aren't, def that we think have autoimmune component, but aren't known that idiopathic condition. And that's what I think is really neat is that's really pointing to that theory that a lot of this idiopathic stuff is just stuff that was not diagnosed because they weren't sick with the inflammation part of the disease. Sneaky immune system behind all of these diseases. Um, what was not clear to me is, so CMET is a transcription factor. Uh, does, do, they, do they know how it re kind of correlates with this identity? Does it, is it yeah, so it's driving some of the downstream cytokines. Ah, okay. Does that allow cytokines, only cytokines or like some chemokine receptors or something that gets these cells to the to do? They look at transmigration for chemokines somewhere, um, but they don't go super in depth on it. They really mostly focus on cytokines. Mm -hmm. It's the autoimmune ones like IL seventeen, IL twenty two. Okay, I mean, makes sense that many of the times. You, you find these cells that you weren't necessarily expecting and they can be quite problematic. I wonder if this gives a, like, if by, for example, uh, you, can, you can do CMED inhibition as a therapy for patients with this idiopathic. Um, That's the idea, right? Or, the, or even autoimmune. Yeah. Because if you treat them with like steroids, for example, does it help? Do they mention that? So they don't, in people, they haven't done it, but in mice it did. So in the mouse inducible model, if you block CMET, you get, you get rid of this. Um, but they have, there's no therapy for autoimmune myocarditis. We just give people steroids. Yeah. Okay. Steroids kind of help for a while. If, you know, yeah. Better. I mean, if you're coming in with rip-roaring autoimmune myocarditis, we immunosuppress you. Right. With just, right. Shock, you know, just, you know, bazooka blast. Let's hope we don't have to do that in the future. Talking about immunosuppression, I'm going to talk about the opposite, vaccination. Again, about vaccination against with HA, uh, hemagglutinin proteins for influenza. If you might remember from our last episode, I talked about the potential of using the stock of HA uh, as a source of antigens for uh, for uh, vaccination. And that the, the paper I, I discussed, they had this uh, particular nano, nanoparticles that were very good at uh, initiating an immune response and they used this stock and they could actually kind of achieve some usable uh, kind of universal um, influenza vaccine with this approach. 
And here I want to present another approach, another uh, um, tr try at making a universal influenza vaccine. And I thought it was very, very nice. A little bit different. In this case, instead of looking for an antigen that is widely present, they are just uh, looking for a platform that allows a lot of antigens at the same time to be uh, administered. And then you can just generate a multiple um, immune response against all of the potential HA uh, molecules of the commonly uh, identified uh, influenza strains. So the paper is uh, a multivalent nucleoside-modified mRNA vaccine against all known influenza virus subtypes. Published in Science, first author Claudia Arevalo from the lab of Scott Hensley at the University of Pennsylvania. And what they did is they kind of went for a, a brute force approach. And they thought, well, how can we vaccinate people with all 20 known lineages of influenza A and B viruses? And they figured that uh, not with current, um, with the most commonly used platforms for generating seasonal influenza vaccines, which usually are uh, inactivated virus that are made in chicken eggs and is very, uh, very time consuming, very complicated. And usually they only include up to four different uh, HA molecules for the four predicted to be dominant strains of the season. Um, you can also make vaccines with many of the antigens, for example, like protein antigens, um, but in their case, they went for what it is now a very uh, well-proven technology, which is messenger RNA in um, and in, in uh, lipo particles uh, encapsulated in uh, LMPs. And so, basically, they took these twenty different uh, hemagglutinin molecules, they encoded them in mRNAs, and they generated a multivalent vaccine. And basically, they they tested it. And they did uh, challenges in mice. They also did some experiments in ferrets, uh, which are a, kind of a better, a closer model to human situation. And they had really interesting results. And I think it's, it might actually, they might be onto something. So they basically had uh, um, doses of a total of 50 micrograms uh, divided between 20 different recombinant uh, sorry, there are 20 different mRNA uh, for the 20 different uh, HAs, and they immunized that mice with that. And they also compared it to, for example, what happens if you would immunize them with 50 micrograms of 20 recombinant proteins instead. And unsurprisingly, the mRNA vaccine could really elicit uh, antibody responses against all 20 HAs much better than the uh, vaccinated with just the proteins did. And uh, and this was also the case, even if the mice had been previously exposed to, for example, HN H1N1 virus, uh, they were they, they could show that this does not affect the generation of antibody against other variants. There was no kind of um, uh, kind of any um, disruption of 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 the of the normal uh, antibody response because it was dominated by one particular previously encountered. Uh, influenza vaccine, and they show that they can really neutralize uh, um, viruses within this, this cocktail. If they select, they did experiment with the H1N1 virus and also H3 
uh, viruses. And they show that if you treat the mice with this vaccine, you can really nicely mediate protection. And they also, in the case of H1N1, they had different strains. Uh, one of them was antigenically similar to the one that was in the in the vaccine, one that was antigenically distinct. And although, and so the way they vaccinated the mice and then they challenged them with either the uh, antigenically similar or the distinct uh, strain, in both cases, they offered uh, protection, but it was uh, in the case of a, a related strain, it was almost complete a protection, the, the 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 strain was almost undetectable in the lungs of the mice. And even with an antigenically mismatched strain, they could uh, protect the mice from severe disease and death. So uh, this showed that it was a very good response that was very, um, very useful for the mice. Uh, interestingly, they see that this is mostly uh, uh, guided by antibodies uh, because if they depleted the, the T cells after the vaccination, and they challenged the mice, the mice still survived. So, and there was mostly, uh, and they did other experiments in which they concluded it was mostly because of either neutralization of the virus, especially when you have antigenically similar strains, or um, antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, ADCC, uh, in the case of kind of mismatched strains that you still had protection, uh, not immediate, but a little bit delayed, but still enough to protect from disease. And in the, in the end, they did this prime boost approach and they tested it in ferrets. So similar to the COVID vaccines, they did an initial vaccination with uh, 60 micrograms of combined uh, and, uh, HA um, mRNAs. And then they had a 28-day booster. And then basically they, they challenged the mice and they showed that really this vaccination protected the ferrets from weight loss, uh, from the symptoms and from, uh, from death. Uh, and although the the viral uh, titers in the in, in the nasal swaps were similar, uh, they the vaccinated ferrets really had a faster viral clearance, and none of them died from the disease. So I think it's very interesting because I've been I've been wondering how long it would take to get now that we've shown that mRNA vaccines can be so potent for COVID. Why are we not looking into this for influenza? That is infamous infamous for being kind of complicated and variable and we have to go to a different vaccine every time. And so maybe this will pave the way. And I'm sure other people are also researching this uh, to choosing a different format for influenza vaccines. Yeah. I feel like in, uh, universal influenza, if we can get it right, we'll be out in about five, six years. They've been really working on it for a while. Now all the new technologies are suggesting some paths forward that have been a struggle before, but like, I think part of it is we've been talking about before is what antigen site do you use? Right. Yeah. It's been, been a struggle. Well, in this case, they, they take all the hemagglutinins from all of the 20 strains in one vaccine. So there's less choosing. You can just use them all. Why not? Why not all? All your hemagglutin are belong to us. <laughs> so yeah, one vaccine to rule them all. Ooh, super bad. One antibody okay. to bind them. <laughs> yeah, one antibody to bind them. And one, and one macrophage to get rid of the kill the virus or something. All right. I will, I will talk I about. Know. Now, this paper combines a variety of different loves of my life together Ooh. into a Voltron of nerdiness. Um, 
I will probably also butcher names here though in advance. So this is in Nature Communications coming out on um, now. They don't have Nature doesn't do it by month. It is issue 13, article number 7197 in this year. Uh, it's kinetics of mRNA nuclear export regulate innate immune response gene expression. Uh, first author is Diane Lefedu. Last author is Alexander Hoffman, but it also cites the UCLA ribonomics group, which has a bunch of people on it. Uh, so this is a really deliciously nerdy paper. It involves kinetics modeling, which makes me happy. Well, differential equations are a way of life. Oh, wow. Yes. What it looks at, though, is they take from bone marrow derived macrophages from mice simulated with LPA. Right. So immune stimulated. Mm -hmm. They look at chromatin-associated RNA-seq versus nucleoplasm RNA-seq versus cytoplasm. As we think about it, right, CARNA is just made but not spliced. Nucleoplasm RNA is being spliced and have the poly, you know, the caps and tails thrown on, right? Then you have your cytoplasmic RNA. And they look at the same gene across all of these. And they're trying to understand, based on quantity, right, at one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes at different time frames. And I can pull up the time frames here. So they, they look at it at up to 120 minutes afterwards. Um, so they do 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 50, 60, 75, 90, 120 minutes, RNA seeks in all these fractions. And then look at the genes at each, in each fraction over time to understand how long it takes a gene, an mRNA, to go from the chromatin to the nucleoplasm to the cytoplasm. Constant immune simulation. Sorry, of which cell type again? Uh, macrophages. Okay. Primary macrophages for mice. So like an immune. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an outstanding. And then they model this to des describe the kinetics of this. So the export rate, the, you know, the on rate, off rate, the bulk export, because they're going to be transport back in. So they do all this kinetic modeling. And then they have a model and they test fit the model against the third cohort. So they did two cohorts of data and then tested the model against the third cohort. So what they find is actually what's really interesting. So they look at then what happens to these different genes, because there's some genes. So they have this concept of the chromatin to cytoplasm export rate, how fast it goes from one end to the other is very gene specific and varies up to a hundredfold. And then for less than 5% of synthesized, and, and then for some genes, less than 5% of synthesized transcripts arrived in the cytoplasm as mature mRNAs, while others are highly exported very quickly. But here's a couple crazy things. So one, you would wonder if the half-life or how much mRNA of something you have in the cytoplasm is related to how good it's being exported. But that's not true. Export rates don't actually determine time gene responsiveness, but they're complemented by gene decay rates. So what you have is that there's that what ends up happening is that genes that come out really hot and fast from the side from the nuclei nucleus, right? If that gene is something that's high on high off, it will also have a very fast mRNA decay rate, right? So this boom is going to get sucked up real quick. The ones that export less, 
tend to have lower mRNA decay rates because you want that mRNA when it finally gets out to do something. The other thing they find is that the more splicing you have to do and the longer the mRNA, the longer it sits in the various spots before getting out of the cytoplasm, particularly at the nucleoplasm where all the splicing happens. All right? Then, guess what? Cytokines don't have a lot of splice sites, have relatively short RNAs, and they're the ones that burst the most. But then they have a very fast decay rate. And so they show all of this in this paper. But the cool thing is that this export rate isn't what drives the half-life. There's decay rates that match. Very interesting. I like that they see up different pattern for cytokines than other yeah. uh, mRNAs. And I hope, do they mention also, like, I know that mRNAs also have a bunch of um, binding sites for, for proteins that interact with these transcripts. Do they mention yeah, so that they, so they So they look at transcription factors. No single transcription factor seems to like, well, if you bind to this transcription factor, like NF-kappa B, are you slow or fast? So they look at that and don't find anything. Um, it generates gene structure and sequence motifs, not epigenetic signatures. Okay. But I mean, the transcripts themselves, like the mRNA molecules, there's like, there's like RNA binding protein that also interact with transcripts in the cytoplasm mostly, I guess. So to examine if RNA binding proteins play a role in regulating the effective transport rate, we test for richer number of motifs. Yeah. Uh, some were correlated with a higher effective rate, uh, but some were on the three prime end were associated with a lower rate. So okay. it depends. It's not universal. Oh, wow. Something in biology depends on the situation. But you know, it depends on which one it is. So QK1, which is RNA binding motif, that made it faster. And okay. YBX1, which I don't know anything about either, made it slower. All right. Uh, and these proteins tend to be involved in mRNA splicing, transport, and decay. Okay. I guess also, well, I wonder if you have longer RNAs and then... Longer RNAs make you slower. Make you slower. More right. splicing makes you slower. And is there anything that is particular to macrophages? Because I, have, I assume that these things have been studied in other cell types. I'm pretty sure This type of work has never been done before at all, I believe. What? Okay. That's quite interesting. Or at least what, at least what the authors say. I mean, think about it. They take hundreds of runs of cells at various data points and fractionate into three parts each cell and then run RNA-seq on each of those parts. Yeah, that seems like a very um, delicate operation you need to do there. And I guess macrophages. Why did they choose macrophages of all cells? Because it's an easy, I don't know, they didn't say, but my guess is because it's an easy immune cell to extract from mice and play with and stimulate. Probably, I don't know. They get they they stuck into plastic and stuff. If you're not careful, that's great. You stick them to plastic, you stimulate them, and you lice them with tris or whatever you're going to do for your export, right? Tris all case because you'll get everything. But you lice them with your fractionation buffer on the plate. Sounds good to me. True. Well, if you're the author of this paper, or a B cell, or heaven forbid, a neutrophil that you're going to look at, and it's going to oh yeah. I would not do this with neutrophils. You look them funny and they explode. So like, obviously, yeah. wrong choice yeah, for this. Well, if you're the author of this paper and you want to justify your choice of macrophages with, ah, they, we just had a lot of those, please do comment on Twitter and let us know. Yeah, um, tweet at us why macrophages. 
Yeah, we're my girlfriend. Anyway, so very nice story. Uh, I'm glad that you got to geek out with uh, modeling or formulas in this biological world. And I'm going to close our session today with cool, cool also from a uh, cool story also from Nature Communications. First author, Judith Svensson Alverund. Al oh my gosh. Arvelund. Did you just uh, butcher a name, Brenda? Yes, I just did. And I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, from the lab of uh, Yosha Brody at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. And uh, the paper is called Expanding Cross-Presenting Dendritic Cells Enhances Oncolytic Biotherapy and It's Critical for Long-Term and Anti-Tumor Immunity. So this paper was uh, really a tour de force. My congratulations to the authors. Uh, so I'm going to try to keep it high level because there's tons of details. But basically, in this paper, they show very nicely, very elegantly, um, what are the benefits of combining a approach for tumor uh, immunotherapy that combines the kind of induction or kind of upregulation of cross-presenting dendritic cells using FLIT3 ligand, which is known to upregulate conventional dendritic cells, and uh, together with an oncolytic virus that in a way targets tumor cells and releases the antigen, releases enough stuff for these cross-presenting dendritic cells to actually present. So the when in the kind of the they, they introduced this topic saying that there's been a lot of kind of either or approaches in which you are either inducing dendritic cells with V3 ligand treatment. So this is a, a, a treatment that is has been used in clinical trials and their patients being treated with V3 ligand to uh, upregulate their um, dendritic uh, cell counts. There's also have been approaches with oncolytic viruses that in the hopes that they will kind of partially lyse the virus, reduce vi uh, lyse the tumors, reduce tumor load, and maybe release enough of the antigens for the T cells to recognize and get trained with. But here they kind of try, why not both come in another situation? Why not doing them at the same time? So they have this, this they have this uh, oncolytic virus, Newcastle disease virus, and DV. And they basically have um, do a lot of experiments in which they treat mice with uh, that have a B cell lymphoma, and they they inject this B cell lymphoma and with NDV, and they show that when you combine this together with mice that had pre been pre-treated with B3 ligand, this actually works synergistically to improve the anti-tumor response. Uh, so they showed that on the one hand, the virus infects the lymphoma cells. So on the one hand, it's killing some cells, so that's good. But on the other hand, it also upregulates those infected cells, upregulate expression of cosimulatory molecules of MHC1 and 2, uh, and very importantly, for the whole system to work, they upregulate interferon responses. And all of this together uh, really activates the dendritic cells to take up the, uh, the tumor 
fragments and present them. Uh, and they can become very good at doing this. So they see an upregulation with the FLIT3, they see an upregulation in conventional dendritic cell uh, subtypes. And you know that, for example, CDC1s are known for being good at cross-presenting, and they see uh, particularly a good increase in this population. And then when they get access to the antigen from the lysed virus and the an interferon type 1 response environment, this really potentiates their uh, ability to cross percent. And this really helps. So they have this system in which they have uh, tumor cells that express GFP and they have Jedi mice, which have uh, TCRs that are recognized an, uh, an epitope from GFP. So that's kind of cool. So they have you use this system to show that they, you have specific responses against this, what would be a neoantigen in a way, because GFP is a non- uh, not normal antigen in, in, in wild-type mice. So you can really induce responses. They also have uh, experiments in human cells where they show also that uh, they can uh, induce DC activation and tumor antigen uptake by infecting the tumor cells with NDV. Uh, and this is substantially increased when you pre-treat, in this case, mice, or, or you get the, this DCs from patients that have been pre-treated with FLIP3 ligand. Um, and they also show that in a situation in which you have other tumor uh, neoepitopes, so they do a, a, a exome sequencing of these tumors line, and they also show that they can induce this combination therapy, can induce neoepitope reactive CD8 T cells, uh, other to uh, uh, antigens other than the very obvious GFP antigen that they are introducing in this tumor site, you know, cell line. So overall, I think it's very, very cool kind of double, double uh, punch approach. Um, and a lot of it has already been tried for one or the other. Uh, so this might be maybe a way of really um, helping generate long-term, they also look into the long-term protection. This induces uh, more long-lived responses than either or, either only, for example, only treated with oncolytic virus. So I really thought it was a cool approach to uh, um, immunotherapy, tumor immunotherapy using oncolytic viruses. If we look at where we are with immunotherapy now, that was this pipe dream probably 15, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. like we're, uh, where we are now talking about this next generation stuff. And it's exciting to see what's coming up now at that translational science front that really is going to tell us where therapy is going to go. It's, it, it's just fascinating, all these new technologies and leveraging biology to deal with other biological problems, right? Yeah, it's great. And when it works, it's even better. When you actually get to treat patients successfully. Uh, it's very, must be very rewarding to be part of these projects. It's an exciting time. All right. Well, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Jason at the University of Virginia in just a moment. But before we get to that, learn about the features of air liquid interface cultures, a physiologically relevant model system for in vitro infection systems, and how researchers are using them to study a variety of viruses, including the novel coronavirus, at stemcell.com/covid and dash ALI. And as someone who's done a lot of ALI in my life in recent years, I can endorse ALI work. It works very, very well for a lot of these things. Hello, everyone. We are talking today to a Professor Jason. He's Harrison Professor of Medicine at the University of Virginia. And his lab 
research mainly the immune response to viral infections. And what I think is very important, the role of the immune response in the aftermath of these infections and the chronic conditions that they can trigger. So very excited about our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, really excited to be here. Thank you for coming on board. All right. Well, I'm going to go with the first one here. Very broad question. What's it been like these last few years being, you know, involved in some of the science that is important for all of humanity in a very acute way? Yeah, that's a good question to start. Um, I have to say it's really challenging, but also exciting. Uh, um, so um, I have, you know, just for myself um, in the past three years, I feel I only take like a very short break and like a vacation. Otherwise, I always working in my office, uh, um, you know, even during the uh, um, like worst time, we don't know what's our future going to be. Um, we don't have a vaccine. We don't have like a, uh, um, uh, a treatment in, like in um, uh, 2020. Um, I was working, you know, on all the time. Um, so initially we, um, want to get into for COVID research uh, for, you know, really badly because I feel like I uh, was studying retroviral infection for um, like 15 years. And uh, right now, um, came with a major in, uh, um, passaging, I was really interested in uh, to uh, uh, study it. And, and of course, it's bad to the humanity, to the society, but as a respiratory, uh, uh, people who study respiratory viral pathogenesis, I, I was very interested in to uh, study it. And um, so we initially mainly because in we were at in Minnesota at that time, I was still at a male clinic. Uh, uh, a good thing for um, Rochester, it's a small city. A good thing is uh, we don't have much of COVID cases, but uh, um, and it's common late, so we did not uh, um, involve in you know, direct COVID research in the first couple of months. Uh, um, but I was like always on top of it, uh, try to collaborate, discussing uh, with friends, colleagues, and and so it's it's been you know challenging and exciting and time. And uh, you know through in general in the field, so many people involved in uh, the COVID research and. Um, the science have been moving forward so fast and essentially we have to update our knowledge daily. And uh, that was because of the whole, you know, uh, um, field, um, everyone is rushing to study it. And, and that's, you know, we have a great outcome with vaccine and treatment and a lot of knowledge being learned. I mean, I remember those, remember those days that every day or something new. And of course, at the beginning, really not knowing anything about it. it's like is how pathogenic is it how is it really that contagious or not or how what are what are the long-term consequences of infection when are we going to get the vaccine it must have been yeah such an exciting on a way exhausting in another way and but uh you clearly you your lab did help our understanding of this disease and i want to talk about that a little bit more and also your studies on mucosin immunity also some uh, of your studies on kind of long COVID and the long-term consequences of COVID, uh, particularly in the immune system. But I just want to quickly touch upon something very, also very now, because at this moment, we're still, of course, 
struggling with COVID. COVID is not gone, and there's new uh, this new strains that seem to also be able to evade immunity. But there's also now a resurgence of other viruses that we had a little bit forgotten about in the whole uh, 2020, 2021, which is influenza and, and RSV that often you don't think a lot about these viruses in general. Um, I am very excited to talk to you and ask you, what is your read on the current kind of triple-demic? Is it as bad as we're thinking? And how does this, from your from your knowledge, is there anything out of the ordinary that we should be paying attention? And does this relate to the previous COVID pandemic? Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, right now uh, we uh, saw this like a surge of uh, um, three viruses, essentially. You know, RSV. Normally, we uh, uh, particularly for adult, we uh, handle it. Uh, very well, not a magic causing problem. Uh, but you know, RSV and the flu infection are always there. You know, every year we do have uh, uh, um, epidemic for flu and RSV, uh, particularly in uh, the winter time. Uh, and flu this year uh, came a, a little bit uh, earlier. And um, so, why this happened? Uh, um, that that's very good question. Uh, 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 we don't know why. Uh, whether this is related to, you know, um, in the past uh, couple of years, we kind of through uh, uh, masking, social distancing, uh, essentially maybe the uh, uh, the society are not uh, exposed to uh, flu or RSV. And maybe we could have some like a, a winged immunity uh, uh, as a general, you know, in, in the society. And and now uh, 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 with uh, um, you know people getting uh, socialized together and uh, less people wearing mask, uh, could it be uh, uh, um, you know the virus start you know we are suddenly become more vulnerable to the to uh, virus. But of course you know uh, because flu you know keep mutating. We you know in, in some years maybe you know flu just. Uh, uh, are better in evading our pre-existing immunity. They're going to go better. Um, the good thing is usually the U.S. flu epidemic following the Australia uh, curve. The Australia curve this year also seems uh, initially started with like a, a, a bad flu season, but then seems uh, quiet down uh, uh, very quickly. So uh, it will be interesting to observe whether the uh, U.S. flu. Uh, uh, incidents are going to quiet down in uh, somehow earlier than um, uh, other years um, in, uh, this year. Um, yeah, RSV, it's it's um, it's it's interesting question. And I guess um, you know again, you know, RSV always uh, are there. And um, I feel you know since uh, COVID, we kind of the society probably a little bit more cautious. Uh, with all the viral infecting spreading, uh, um, you know, maybe we are just more aware of it, and mm -hmm. and 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 then uh, on top of that, maybe uh, because um, um, particularly when we suddenly getting um, uh, socializes, you know, getting together again, you know, it's really uh, 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 and because as I said, because of the wind immunity, mm -hmm. the RSV. Could uh, you know start to uh, really spread more than the other years? Mm -hmm. Some people have suggested that part 
in a similar way to measles, COVID can also result in a battered immune system uh, with re reduced uh, um, counts of CD8 cells or naive uh, CD8 cells in blood, or kind of this aging of the immune system. This, I think, maybe in the we I would like to ask you about that in the larger context of. What are the sequelae from a uh, COVID uh, infection? What are the things that you are looking into that are particularly problematic? And whether uh, there is any um, support for this idea that there's some specific um, reduction in, in, in the immune response, in, uh, in the kind of the potential of the immune system to um, react to other diseases afterwards? Um, yeah, so um, that that's a good question. Um, um, people, you know, have all these different ideas. You know, when they, these acute severe infection, uh, you know, definitely really is a big challenge to uh, uh, our body's immune system. Uh, our study mainly focusing on uh, um, the lung per se. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, that idea uh, um, early on, say, hey, maybe COVID, could it be you know sub immunosuppressive because it's really reduce uh, the uh, blood uh, uh, you know lymphocyte count. Uh, um, that uh, uh, notion has been challenged a little bit, particularly because uh, uh, if we look at it, uh, you know, in the tissue, uh, um, the T cell seems um, really uh, 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 because of the inflammation in the tissue. Um, presumably, the T cell uh, um, um, have a preferential uh, uh, migration to uh, uh, the tissue and may uh, partly explain why uh, there's a diminished uh, lymphocyte count. And also at the same time, uh, uh, because of the infection inflammation, we're probably going to have more acute myelopoiesis and you know, generating more monocyte and neutrophil, which may also contribute to you know decrease of uh, lymphocyte percentage uh, in the blood um uh, so uh, some of these effect uh, can last uh, uh, you know really long even after virus being uh, cleared both in human as well as in uh, animal models and the, these you know altered immune response may contribute to uh, some chronic symptoms uh, uh, in um um, a patient, uh, and nowadays we can also observe in uh, animal models. Um, so whether this COVID is going to induce like a immunosuppressive, long-term immunosuppressive actually causing increased like a, a infection of other virus like influenza or RSV could, uh, you know, somehow explain why we have these uh, surgeons of, uh, to other respiratory virus. It's a good question. Personally, I would believe maybe the effect uh, could be moderate. I I I I cannot imagine uh, uh, it would have like a, a huge effect on uh, in uh, um, you know after recover from COVID uh, would have a huge you know really set up the susceptibility of the host to. Uh, flu or RSV infection uh, or other viral infection. Uh, um, 
Um, but it's a good question. Uh, um, I, I don't think anybody uh, have a clear answer when you look at this. So one of the things you study is the sequela or long-term consequences of viral infection. And long COVID has been something people talk about a lot. But I've, I've seen contradictory papers on this to an extent about how much it's a phenomenon specific to COVID and how much of it's a phenomenon that's actually much more common to a lot of viral infections. And everyone's just paying a hell of a lot of attention to COVID these days. And so we all think about it there. So I wonder if you could comment on that some in, in particular, is long COVID really unique to COVID or is it more something that's true for a lot of viruses we're paying attention to today? Yeah, that, that's a good topic. Um, so uh, um, for me, I do, uh, first, I, I do believe, you know, many acute infection couldn't lead to long-term uh, uh, consequences. And uh, as this have been, you know, uh, 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 investigated before, but uh, not get a lot of public attention. Uh, for, you know, um, uh, you know, some of those systemic infections, Infection definitely can do that for specifically for respiratory viral infection, you know, like flu infection or prior MERS, uh, SARS CoV 1, uh, even RSV infection have all been recognized that can lead uh, to long term consequence to uh, uh, the host, uh, either through uh, damaged uh, uh, tissue or through uh, uh, some kind of uh, chronic inflammatory response uh, 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 um, in the host could cause uh, uh, some symptoms to the host. Um, so, so first, of all, yeah, I, I, I believe uh, um, uh, some of these non-COVID symptoms uh, may not be unique to uh, uh, non-COVID. Um, a second uh, part, uh, so some of them may be unique because uh, unlike uh, flu or RSV, usually uh, uh, you know, viral replication are, are very much restricted to the lung. Uh, uh, you know, we know now COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus can potentially spread to other organs, particularly in the gut. And this uh, uh, infection in other organs may also uh, causing uh, damage or you know, leave some viral remnant or antigen there. Uh, Chronically stimulate uh, uh, immune our body's immune response or inflammation may contribute to like a multi organ or systemic effect. Um, uh, normally, like a uh, flu infection or RSV infection uh, seems need uh, to a uh, long term effect more often in, in the pulmonary uh, uh, respiratory tract. But you know, with non COVID, we you know uh, uh, nowadays we noticed the. Uh, um, Essentially, this uh, uh, um, a lot of a systemic effect and uh, also chronic uh, sequelae in uh, actual pulmonary uh, uh, organs. Uh, um, so, so uh, in short, I I believe uh, um, first, uh, you know, many acute infection can cause chronic sequelae, and second, there may be some unique uh, uh, property of this non or unique. Uh, uh, etiology of non uh, and symptoms of non-COVID. I think that's really so important to understand. I, I particularly am very curious about the kind of the tropism of the virus, whether this, this idea that COVID is more systemic than other uh, respiratory viruses that we're used that we were used to before, and how that really affects our understanding of the, the chronic disease that they can leave behind. When it comes to the lungs, um, 
what do we understand about the the mucosal immunity that we get? You also have uh, you also studied what kind of mucosal immunity we can get from vaccination and how protected that is against uh, newer strains that come out. Maybe do you want to maybe comment a little bit about about that about that this publication? I think was very interesting uh, uh, regarding mucosal immunity immunity against SARS-CoV-2. Um, yes. Uh, um, so yeah, we get into these um, was in. Uh, firstly, you know, um, right now uh, um, we have lots of study on in terms of uh, really established uh, uh, both a viral infection or vaccination, like particularly MI vaccination, uh, could induce a, a pretty robust uh, immune response uh, in the blood in the circulation. We get into this topic at the time we were thinking. Uh, maybe there's a knowledge gap uh, in this uh, because ultimately COVID spread uh, or SARS-CoV-2 virus spreads through uh, the respiratory tract. We, uh, uh, in order to really assess uh, how pre-existing immunity induced by either infection or vaccination in uh, protection against uh, uh, um, uh, later contraction with uh, uh, um, you know uh, second. Uh, exposure of SARS-CoV-2, uh, we wouldn't need to really assess the uh, 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 mucosal immunity. And my lab um, mainly interested in the uh, cellular immunity, the T cell response and the B cell response. So, uh, uh, so we saw that you know in, in order you know when uh, uh, for in order to study the mucosal cellular immunity, we really have to uh, directly. Uh, assess uh, the lower respiratory tract and the lungs so we can get enough cells to study that. So um, and what we found, uh, uh, so we, we what we decided to do is we want to do bronchoalveolar lavage uh, uh, um, uh, um, and to obtain uh, the fluid and the cell component uh, from the lower respiratory tract and the lung of uh, uh, infected uh, uh, individual as well as uh, 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 vaccinated individual too. Uh, and then we also get the blood uh, um, samples to try to uh, compare side by side how infection and the vaccination going to induce this differential circulating and the mucosal immunity. Uh, what we found is that, uh, so, um, um, the uh, M the vaccination, particularly mRNA vaccination, really induce strong uh, circulating immunity, as which is uh, demonstrated by many other groups. Um, uh, uh, however, um, this vaccination seems does not induce a strong uh, um, mucosal immunity. We call it a suboptimal mucosal immunity. Essentially, we can find. Uh, this uh, uh, spike-specific IgG response uh, um, in uh, the lung, but not uh, IgA. And also, uh, 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 vaccination really induce a, a very uh, a moderate or sometimes minimum uh, cellular immunity, the T cell and uh, uh, B cell response in the lung. So we conclude that Unlike uh, prior infection, which in, uh, uh, can induce robust uh, both arms of the adaptive immunity, both the cellular and the humoral immunity, uh, particularly IgA response, uh, um, this vaccination really induce uh, uh, um, 
only in IgG response, which presumably come from uh, uh, the blood, uh, um, but not IgA. And so IgA you already uh, produced uh, in the, um, at the site of uh, uh, infection or, or at the mucosal site. And, um, um, and also does not generate uh, a good B cell and T cell response at the site of uh, uh, viral entry. Uh, so we conclude uh, so vaccination alone, uh, intramuscular vaccine, current vaccination alone uh, um, probably does not induce strong mucosal immunity, therefore cannot stop virus uh, from entry. Yeah. I think we've we discussed in this podcast a lot about nasal vaccination, or uh, uh, so I guess that you probably are also a, a supporter of of a nasal priming, for example, uh, strategy to uh, push up those mucosal immunology uh, or those, those yeah specific mucosal numbers of of T cells or B cells or a particular uh, Ig. Uh, subtypes in 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 patients with or people treated with a maybe a, a different type of vaccination. Uh, yeah, definitely. We think uh, the ultimate, uh, you know, the best vaccine. If we can develop a mucosal vaccine, if we can uh, uh, have an ideal mucosal vaccine, can induce a very strong IgA response as well as a strong uh, uh, mucosal. Uh, uh, resident memory B cell and resident memory T cell response, we could uh, um, ideally, once the virus, uh, uh, um, once the host contracted the virus, so we uh, could theoretically immediately block the virus uh, infection to achieve the sterile uh, immunity and sterile protection uh, against uh, uh, viral entry. Um, uh, regarding the IgA uh, response, people, you know, some clinical studies start to uh, um, emerging that uh, the, the mucosal IgA response seems uh, is a better prediction against the breakthrough Omicron infection, um, but not uh, systemic IgG or system mucosal, even mucosal IgG response. Somehow the IgA in the mucosal surface is more protective against those uh, variant of concerns uh, than um, the IgG uh, uh, response, uh, either in the mucosal surface or in uh, circulation. So, I, I would uh, um, a strong supporter to you know have a, a vaccine can induce a uh, uh, very good mucosal IgA and cellular response. So we've covered several papers that show that you know the system of like a primary series. That's that typically is one of these mRNA vaccines. And then they do a booster that's nasal and that's antigen or antigen coupled with um, nanoparticles or a lipid particle mRNA. But the, the different papers have done different things, but they all show this massive, you kind of actually want the priming from an IgG response to then help with the IgA later. And then these nasal vaccines go in and then give you that IgA mucosal response. So it seems like everyone's pointing the same direction, right? You're saying it, all these papers are showing it. There's tons of mouse data this works really well. Why haven't we already done this in people to this point? Like we've already, we, we popped out mRNA vaccines very rapidly. Why not just get the nasal thing going and get this as a booster in 2024 or 2023 even? Like, would, do, you under, do you know at all why there's a holdup on taking this step to a mucosal vaccine? 
Yeah, that that's a good question. You know, so far, um, the animal study is really uh, suggesting a mucosal vaccine or mucosa, particularly mucosa booster. We we yeah, we we do think maybe with a mRNA priming in the periphery and a mucosal booster probably is a better strategy in in, in terms of in induction of immunity as well as supported by other uh, people's work. In terms of why we still haven't got that, I. I think uh, um, there's a, um, a number of reasons. First, uh, uh, so uh, right now we just don't have uh, you know many mucosal vaccine on the market. People are kind of skeptical. Uh, um, with the uh, live attenuated influenza vaccine, that's the only like uh, uh, vaccine on the you know US market. Um, it worked well in children uh, um, but not working very well in the adult uh, uh, presumably because of the uh, adult uh, already have a pre-existing immunity against the nivatanid viral infection so the virus don't infect very well uh, therefore it does not induce a very good uh, de novo immunity um, and uh, therefore, the protection uh, 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 would not be uh, good in um, the adult. Um, so, so this may uh, uh, scare uh, um, uh, some um, people in terms of you know uh, this not so successful mucosal uh, um, vaccine on the market to a majority of the individuals. Um, the other uh, thing that you know there are many. Uh, also practical, uh, is, uh, I guess people may question, so if we have already have a good vaccination on the you know, mm-hmm. uh, current mRNA vaccine on the market, which is uh, to protect us from severe disease, even though it does not pro- uh, provide so good protection against you know, mild infection or spread of the, does not, you know, uh, really uh, generated this so-called herd immunity to really uh, cease the infection spreading. Um, but, you know, people still get a protection from uh, hospitalization or from uh, death. Mm. Uh, maybe we don't need a, a you know, mucosal vaccine. Um, 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 you know, there's some other, uh, um, you know, practical reasons, for instance, you know, how we going to in uh, in order to develop a mucosal vaccine, we need to uh, uh, really you know, because a current uh, um, uh, assess you know vaccine efficacy sometimes you know through indirect assessment of uh, uh, blood like antibody response. Uh, um, so in order to assess uh, uh, the efficiency of um, a mucosal vaccine, we need to uh, assess the mucosal, you know, immunity. Mm. So, we um, in in human, it's just uh, being uh, harder to do. Uh, um, yeah. um, and and also, you know, you know, with different delivery strategy, with potential safety concerns. The, I guess this all being the potential hurdle or challenges of uh, uh, mucosal vaccine. Um, so that being said, we do have like two adenovirus based. Uh, uh, mucosal uh, uh, vaccine approved against uh, SARS-CoV-2 in India and in China, and particularly with the data I saw in, uh, in China, mm-hmm. it seems the uh, um, adenovirus-based mucosal 
booster uh, vaccine seems to generate a very good immune response uh, in uh, both systemically as well as uh, uh, in the mucosal surface. Um, um, so, you know, we still don't know the real world efficacy mm. of that vaccine, but maybe that would give us a lot of information whether this route in you know, a mucosal delivery of a vaccine would be really a promising route uh, uh, or not. Um, That's very interesting. I didn't know that there were already approved mucosal vaccines in India and China. Uh, I guess in the case of China in particular, they probably could use, say, uh, a booster of a, of a vaccine to help out their vaccination, uh, um, the vaccination percentages. I hope that they, if it works, that they maybe, it, it, is it easier when it comes to like rolling out a vac a, a nasal vaccination? Is, is it something easier to do logistically, do you think, than having to inject, have people like that are trained to apply injections, would that have also a result in a, in a different way of administering these vaccines? That, that's an interesting question. I, I, you know, first of all, I have to uh, make a disclosure. I'm an immunologist. I'm not an expert. Yeah, of course. <laughs> or, uh, um, this is logistic. Uh, um, um, you know, we do know some people are afraid of, you know, needle injection. So maybe a mucosal uh, uh, delivery or nasal spray, mucosal delivery of vaccine could be, you know, uh, uh, good for those people who are afraid of needles. Uh, um, but, you know, also have some challenges in terms of the mucosal vaccine. So for a needle injection, we can give people exactly the same amount of antigen mm -hmm. or the dose of mRNA. Uh, for a mucosal delivery, either uh, nasal spray or inhalation or nasal drops. Uh, one problem is it's hard to control the dose, right? Mm -hmm. And some people maybe if we have nasal drops, some people maybe just don't take it. And nasal spray, uh, um, um, yeah. So that's also some practical uh, issues. How are we going to standardize it? You know, everybody get yeah. the same amount of uh, antigen. Um, uh, could it be? A potential issue. Um, um, yeah. but, uh, so yeah. sorry. So going back to what your, I think a, a better uh, topic of discussion, and also continuing on the, on the research that your lab does. There's also, I think also I find very interesting is what our our understanding is on the relationship between age of a patient and the kind of the age of the immune system of a patient and how this patient responds to respiratory diseases and the potential for long-term uh, long uh, consequences of infection. So maybe that's also something very interesting. We, we do know that as we age, uh, our immune system changes quite dramatically, particularly for certain effector T-cell substances that are becoming more and more prevalent when we measure at least in blood. But I assume that this would also be the case in mucosal surfaces. So what do we understand about the role of aging and our response to mucosal uh, diseases or mucosal infections? Yeah, so aging is a, a major risk factor for you know, mucosal infections. Um, um, you know, as you just noted, you know, aging, you know, strikes so many uh, challenges to the immune system, and we have immunosenescence. Uh, uh, generally, it's just not so good to generate 
um, like a de novo undue response against our passaging, uh, uh, both in terms of innate as well as uh, uh, adaptive immunity against uh, viral infection. Uh, so in generally, what we observed uh, both like in uh, animal models as well in human, so so um, uh, in the uh, uh, host, um, it's really take a time to generate a good antiviral immune response. So the, the uh, antiviral immune response is just not so speedy. So that caused a problem to restrain the virus. So the virus could uh, replicate higher and spread uh, more to the organ, so causing more injury. Um, on the other hand, aging, once the, it takes time to generate a good immune response, once the immune response uh, generated in young individuals, once the virus is being contained, we want this immune response to be uh, uh, to down-regulated uh, because uh, we want to shut off the immune response potential are dangerous and to resolve the inflammation and repair the injured tissue. Um, and in aging, once the response being uh, generated, it's also taken longer time for them to, for the inflammation or immune response to resolve. Uh, and so the tissue can uh, heal. So uh, um, aging um, just uh, not induce a very uh, speedy and a good response and also cannot shut uh, all for the response uh, timely, so would are causing more injuries and the tissue may be not heal very well. And then uh, uh, this could lead to some chronic uh, uh, sequelae of the tissue and the uh, our uh, uh, entire uh, body, um, and may lead to the chronic sequelae. See, Brenda, it's not fun getting old. <laughs> I was about to make that same comment, but I I, I thought it would be. Too ageist of me, but I'm glad you did. So take care of yourself, Jason. Take care of yourself. No more infections. <laughs> With those two kids you have, hard. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> so, little petri dishes. Yeah. All right. Well, we could talk for quite a while, but we we are limited on the time that we're supposed to just hang out. And I know we could probably talk viruses forever. Uh, but that being said, we always like to wrap up the podcast by asking kind of a fun question, get to know something about you other than your views on virology and immunity. And so that being said, if you could answer any single scientific question, regardless of your expertise or your field, if you could just get this answered, what would the question be? What would it be and why? Um, yeah, so I, if I can choose another thing to do in the term of science, uh, I feel I really want to do uh, synthetic biology. Uh, I feel it's really cool to create a, like a cell or organism from scratch, you know, kind of, um, you know, act like a god to, to <laughs> really create something. Uh, 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 um, that, that would be really cool and fun to do. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I know, you know, the entire field, I'm not there yet. That's, it's challenging, but that's why it's interesting to do. Mm -hmm. I guess I feel really open for the big questions of what makes cells live. But I mean, they have made some, there are some like minimal genomes and they synthesize them from scratch and they put them inside some kind of empty cell or something. When we're getting there, there's also like things self-replicating ribosomes to an extent now, RNAs that'll self-replicate, but then doing that de novo is the question. 
so we can make it so then if you put it in primordial soup, it'll make more of itself, even outside of a cell. Fun. So we're just starting the the whole ribozyme world. Well, right. They think that's the first enzyme, right? And that's the first sign of life as a ribosome that can replicate itself. They think. Hmm. They think. Okay. That, that's the minimum. That's the smallest unit. Yeah. It's, it's something that can make more of itself that is a something. Well, I also like synthetic biology, but I think I like it more from the from the point of view of like simplifying uh, the biology through synthetic programs and like these people that do these kind of circuits uh, analogous to to like electrical circuits, but with signaling and things like that. And they have these gates and like like Bayesian logic, and then you, uh, if not gates, and that's really fun because it's like a little software thing, but it's actually in a cell that lives. But I also like that. So one day we'll have computers in us and we'll also have biological computers and then the entire world will just be the matrix. Well, thank you very much for coming on and sharing with us. Uh, do you have any open positions for postdocs or grad students you want to advertise here before we get going? Um, yeah, maybe for a postdoc position. Uh, um, it, uh, as you guys probably heard, it, nowadays it's really harder to recruit a postdocs. Um, so we kind of constantly recruiting uh, 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 post uh, postdocs. It's you know that's a, like a, a challenge for almost every colleagues I know. I've heard that apparently it's because evil businesses like mine keep hiring all the people. <laughs> As I was to say, Jason is the reason. He is the example. Well, then postdocs alert, um, and I hope that you got get to find the right colleagues in this environment. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, include an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or maybe if you want to suggest a guest. See you next time.